My Father, we do pray now that you would, in this next part of our worship to you, that you would, by your grace, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love and yield to the truth that will be presented to us. Prepare our hearts to come to your table as your people to remember the sacrifice of your Son and the great glories of the redemption we share in him even today and that and of that kingdom that we long for that's coming with his return. May you be, again, exalted and pleased um, with what your word produces in us and our response of love and obedience. Thank you again for this time to gather as your people. And again, we offer this time to you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. We are going to conclude this morning our look at the coming Antichrist. The coming Antichrist referred to by Jesus in Matthew chapter 24, 15, which has launched uh, the last four messages uh, on this topic that we've had. And of course, even though we've spent four messages on this topic, we have only scratched the surface. We've only begun to consider all that Scripture reveals about this coming evil one. But hopefully it's sufficient to give a framework uh, to think about what God has told us about the future concerning the rise of the Antichrist. And as we've skimmed the surface in many ways of the passages we've already looked at, we'll do the same this morning as we'll try to cover all of Revelation 13, which is a massive undertaking uh, in one message. Not getting into every detail, but hopefully painting a picture from this glorious passage of Scripture of all that God has told us to prepare us for what He is doing in this world and what He will do in the future through this evil one. Now, as you're turning to Revelation chapter 13, let me just very quickly bring you up to speed about the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, we're familiar with the vision that John had of the risen Christ, the glorious vision of Christ. And then in chapter 2, that glorious Christ gave a word through John to seven churches of that time, a message to them, a message of Christ to his church. In chapters 4 through 5, there was an interlude, a scene in heaven, as it were, that exalts the glory of God the Father and of Christ as worship is given to them for creation and for redemption. And specifically, it shows that Christ is the worthy one, the only worthy one, to take the scroll that holds the judgments that God is about to unleash on the world before he establishes his kingdom. Chapter 6 through 9, then, are the unfolding of the destruction of the Lamb and of the Father upon the world through the judgment of the seals and the judgment of the trumpets. The judgment of the bowls will come later after chapter 13. It's massive destruction. Massive destruction brought on the world, not only by that which will be human destruction of the Antichrist through wars and so forth, but more specifically, the destruction that God will bring on the world upon his rebellious image bearers. In chapter 10, we have the episode of John eating a sweet and bitter book, which contained also the remaining prophecies to come. 
Chapter 11, we had two witnesses of God that will proclaim the truth and perform miracles until God ordained that moment when they would be killed and then rise three days later before a watching world. Chapter 12 gives us an account of Satan's fall from heaven, his attempt to destroy the infant Christ, his rage at Israel that will take place primarily during the last three and a half years of the tribulation and introduces the ultimate plan of the dragon and the rise of the Antichrist. And then that brings us to chapter 13, verse 1 in the statement, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. The dragon here is Satan. He's already been identified in chapter 12. And here now he stands as the great enemy of God's people over, it says, John does, the seas, or the sand of the seashore. This is a place of authority and rule. And with that as the setting of the stage for all that God is going to reveal about the character and the rise and the kingdom of this coming one, we will now look at the rest of the chapter and consider it in more detail. But let's, before we do that, let's read verses 1 all the way down to verse 18. And then we'll look at eight marks of the character of the Antichrist. So we'll read from 1 to 18 and note briefly eight marks of the character and the kingdom of this coming one. Let's begin with verse 1 of chapter 13. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority." I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance of the saints and the faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth... To make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. 
And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, the rich and the poor, the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark either the name of the beast or of the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. Go back up to verse 1, and let's begin with the first mark or characteristic of the kingdom of this coming evil one, the Antichrist. And the first one is this. He is a wicked ruler over a kingdom resembling the Roman Empire. That's the first point. He is a wicked ruler over a kingdom resembling the Roman Empire. Look at verse 1 again. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. Consider his identity. He is a beast coming up out of the sea. And this is a picture of his treachery, of his wickedness, of his evil. The beast in prophetic, beast in prophetic literature are often pictured as instruments of God's judgment. Fallen creatures who God allows to devour and to destroy his people as a means of his discipline and judgment on them for their sin. The beastly imagery is given here to mark the the unholy and the godless and the ravenous and the vicious and the destructive nature of this one who will rise, who spiritually, morally will be filled with wickedness and all ungodliness that again intends only to devour and to destroy. Now exactly who is or what is this beast? There's debate over whether it refers to a human ruler or whether it refers to a kingdom. And the answer to that, I think, is this. It refers to both. It refers to both. The ruler and the kingdom are one. He is a ruler who reigns over a worldwide kingdom, a final worldwide kingdom. Although the emphasis here, as we'll see as we walk through this, is on the human ruler over this kingdom. It's on the individual ruler who is over this final wicked kingdom. And he is described here as a beast, as a beast. Now the kingdom aspect of his reign, his empire, was foreshadowed in Daniel chapter 7. And we're not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want to mention Daniel chapter 7. If you remember the vision that Daniel was given regarding the coming kingdoms that were coming upon the earth, future to his time, three of them have already come. Indeed, four have, but not the final form of the fourth. He says in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 3, there were four great beasts who were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Mentions one like a lion with the wings of an eagle in verse 5, a second one resembling a bear. In number 6, there was a third one like a leopard. And after this, there was a terrifying and a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Clearly, this is forming then the backdrop of the imagery that 
is given to John here for Revelation 13, speaking of this coming one, this coming Antichrist and his kingdom. This is then an empire that was anticipated, an empire that was anticipated by God and a ruler that was anticipated by God. Now he mentions here that he was coming up out of the sea. And again, what is the sea here? It could be either the Gentile nations, which finds support in the prophets and in Revelation 17, 15, where this beast is said uh, to come. The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. It could also be a reference to the abyss where God keeps now captive demons who are too wicked to have been let out until the time of the great tribulation that God is bringing upon the earth. And again, which is he referring to? And I would say there's no need to be absolutely dogmatic. Elements of both are true here in terms of his political empire. would hold that he rises out of the area of the Mediterranean, particularly out of the Gentile nations on the earth at that time. And in terms of his spiritual origin, he is from the abyss, which is to say he is under the direct influence of demonic and satanic power. He himself is not a demon. He is a human being. He is a child of... Adam, he is a descendant of Adam, but he is one in whose spirit at some point in his life, maybe even from his very early years, embraced the wicked influence on his heart and gave himself completely to the control and the purposes and the design of Satan. It's not unlike what's described about Judas in John 13, 7, and before he betrayed Christ, it says that Satan entered into him. In other words, Satan at that point took absolute and full control of Judas to do what God had already predetermined he would do, which is betray the Son of God. And so it is here. This one is going to be a human person completely under the control of the evil one. And I'll mention this again, but I want you to notice as we go through here, there is throughout this chapter, in chapter 13, a parallel given to the nature of God. In other words, God is a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit. And here we have an unholy trinity. Of that unholy trinity, Satan, the dragon, would be like the Father, who plans and has a plan he's going to execute on the world. The Antichrist would be like the Son who comes and is the embodiment of the evil plans of this wicked one. And the false prophet is like the Holy Spirit directing all praise and attention to the Antichrist and the wicked designs that he has. So he is one who is full of wickedness. The design of this trio is to model the very nature of God himself. Speaking of his kingdom, he's said to have ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his head were blasphemous names. Now you'll notice in verse 3 of chapter 12 that a very similar description is given of Satan. Another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great and red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Again, connecting him to his satanic origin. His satanic and evil nature and design. And while many specu- much speculation and many explanations have been offered, the clearest is drawn from the background of Daniel 7 and Revelation 17. We mentioned it before in Daniel 7, verses 7 through 8. 
And it would hold here then that the identity is meant to be primarily of this other, the kingdom that is to come, of a revived Roman Empire. In other words, an empire that would model the one that has already come and gone and is yet to come again. As a matter of fact, in Revelation 17, he'll use that similar language. He says this, And the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. The seven heads, he says in verse 9, are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The heads then here, drawing on and expanding and continuing the imagery of the kingdoms of the beast that will come on the world found in Daniel chapter 7, are most likely here then successive stages of this kingdom that has been building and is going to come to a final and a full fruition at the end of the age. The heads would be then Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's only six. The seventh here is the head of the kingdom of the Antichrist, which again would hold as a revived Roman-like empire. It is the kingdom of the Antichrist in its final form. The ten horns refers to ten kings who will give their power to the beast. Again, John informs us of this in Revelation chapter 17. He says in verse 12, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive a kingdom. They receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour, and these have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. So this is a kingdom that is not but is coming. This is a kingdom that is anticipated. It is a kingdom that is a confederacy of some sorts where these kings are all taking their combined power and authority and influence politically, militarily, and they are giving it to this final world leader who will rise and ascend to power, which is what John is looking at here. It is the fourth beast, then, a final and a wicked kingdom, a revived Roman empire that will in the last days be led by Satan. And to say it is a revived Roman empire is essentially to say this, that like the Roman empire, it was a confederacy of nations. It was many many parts to it under one head. It was one who was filled with wickedness. And it was one that God used early on for the persecution of his own church and his own people. And yet this one will be worse than anything the world has seen. It's described actually in Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read that in verses 23 through 25. Let me read to you Daniel seven twenty-three through 25. A little more detail is given there. He says this. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings 
He will speak out the Most High. It's looking from the kingdom now again to the individual. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Clearly a reference to that point in the final week that he will expand on in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, the final week of God's plans for his nation of Israel, the tribulation period. And so here then is that kingdom, here is that ruler who will exercise his authority over the earth. And he will be marked also by blasphemy. Look at the last description there. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And here it just marks his blatant rebellion and mockery to Christ and therefore of the Father and the Spirit. His kingdom is one that is openly, intentionally, and aggressively against Christians and Christianity and any who would name Christ. And of course, initially, even against Israel itself, openly and aggressively hating anything that would mark smack of the name of Christ. Let's note second there, that is his kingdom. Second mark then is he is a kingdom, his kingdom will be powerful and embody all the political and military strength of of preceding world empires. Look at the description in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And again, the imagery there is pulling from Daniel 7. The leopard was a description of the kingdom of Greece, speaking of its speed and its strength. Thinking of its ability to mobilize and move rapidly and carry out its military program. The bear is a reference to the media Persian empire, which was known by its strength and its power and its destructiveness. He will have the fierceness of the mouth of a lion, which again marks strength and a ferocious aggressiveness, openly displaying the full measure of Satan's animosity, resentment, and hatred of God. He will have the combined power of all of the kingdoms that have preceded him and all of their might, all of their strengths, those things that marked them out as dominating world powers will be combined in this final kingdom in this wicked ruler who is to come. And again, this empire is anticipated but has gone off the scene. The Roman Empire, which was... The first manifestation of that fourth beast has come and gone off of the scene. It was present during the time of Christ. It was present during the writing of Revelation. But it essentially ceased to exist as a world power. This is somewhat arguable. But around 476 A.D. That it it ceased to have its empire-like power. And it ceased to exist in a form that was a threat. It went off of the scene. It was anticipated, but it went off the scene. But this cannot be that kingdom. And the reason is, is because Daniel specifically says that kingdom will be destroyed with the coming of Christ. So it is a kingdom that will be present on the earth at the coming of Christ. So it cannot be the Roman Empire that had come and gone. It has to be a Roman-like empire that is yet still to be in the future that he describes here as being under the authority and the control of this final wicked world ruler. This cannot be what has already taken place in history. There is a future aspect to it here. This is the kingdom that will be the kingdom of the Antichrist. And it is coming. 
Notice three. I'm going to go quickly here. Thirdly, he will be directly empowered by Satan. He will be directly empowered by Satan. Look at the last part of verse 2. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Again, the dragon is Satan here, the one presiding over the kingdom over which the beast rules. And he's pictured here as transferring all of his might and his energy and his strength and his powers of deception to be concentrated in one single individual. And later it will come to include also the false prophet. This is a highly significant statement, a highly significant statement, because the fact is that God during this period in his plan, and even more so in what is to come, has allowed and allotted and given to Satan a great measure of power and authority on this earth, a great measure of power and authority on this earth. John has already said of Satan in 1 John 5, 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Paul calls him the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Jesus himself twice calls him in the Gospel of John the ruler of this world. All of these speak of authority. All of these speak of power. All of these speak of influence. When Satan offered to Christ the kingdoms of the world and their glory at the end of the desert temptations, Jesus did not refute him. Why? Because they were Satan's to give. They were Satan's to give. God gave them to him. And Satan rightly and was fully within his rights at that time to offer them to Christ. So this is great power. This is great authority. And it's all of what Satan has been allowed to give to kings in the past concentrated in this one one individual. This is an authority and a power that Satan has had since the fall of man in Genesis 3. But it's important for us to understand that as great as that power is and as significant as that authority is, it's always been up to the point of Revelation 13 limited by God in some manner. And I would suggest to you at least two ways that it has been limited by God that will be removed at this point in God's plan of redemption. The first is this. It's always been limited by the purposes of God in his own unchallenged and absolute sovereignty over creation. In other words, by the mere purpose of God. It was not yet his time to give Satan the full measure and expression of the authority that he would later. Though his authority is great, It was limited by the purposes of God. The end was not yet to come. He had things to accomplish. There is a second way, and in some ways you could say a more practical way, that God limited the the expression of Satan's authority that he gave him. And it's this. His presence and work in and through an elect people on the earth. His presence and work in an elect people on the earth. There were the patriarchs, but then there was the nation of Israel through whom God was working out his plan and accomplishing his purposes. There was, and there is now, the church wherein the Spirit of God dwells and is a presence on the earth, a light and salt on the earth. And there is a sense where God has a restraining on the full expression of his authority as long as the church is in its present form on the earth where the spirit dwells. However, when God removes the church, 
He essentially removes the remaining restraining presence of the Spirit and in the same manner hands over the world to the wicked plans and desires of Satan. In other words, his restraint is removed both by his sovereign design and plan for this wicked to be given the reign that it is on earth at that time and because his removal of the church. This is... I would submit very similar, but in an ultimate expression, like what God warns of in Romans chapter 1. We won't turn there. I'll mention these verses that you're familiar with. That God, as, as an act of judgment on his rebellious creatures, both on individuals, this is true at times, only God knows when, It's true of nations and people groups that he says that God gives them over to their sin. He gives them over and he gives them the full reign of every wicked desire that is within them. And it is the result of a consistent rejection of the righteousness of God, willful and consistent and full. Even though they knew him as God, they would not honor him as God. Paul says it this way, speaking in 2 Thessalonians of the time that is to come, that after God sends a deluding influence, he says, because they would not receive the love of the truth. Why? Because they loved pleasure and wickedness instead. And so it says in Romans that he gave them over to the lust of their hearts. In verse 24, he gave them over to degrading passions. In verse 26, and he gave them over to a depraved mind. In verse 28. And this is precisely what he will do, not to an individual, not to a nation, but essentially to the whole world at this time. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.6. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed, speaking of the man of lawlessness. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, there is a point where all of God's restraint of the the constant pulse of wickedness that is in our heart and that is in the world, directed by the evil one, the spirit of Antichrist, where God's restraint of that will be removed and Satan and evil will be given full reign on the earth. And all of Satan's plans will be allowed to be enacted. Every force of evil and deception and corruption of man's heart will be given full expression. It will be unfettered wickedness. What we see in our culture today, which seems to be a massive and intense and a rapid running into the direction of unrighteousness, not unwillingly, not slowly, but without restraint, receiving what is wicked as what is right, and what is right as what is wicked, and persecuting the ways of God. And we think it is so bad, and it is so bad, it's not even an inkling of what the world will be given over to at the time of the rise of the Antichrist. This is only a small measure, and I would submit to you that the rapidity and the swiftness and the quickness at which we see it happening in our own times shows us that it can happen in a moment. When God gives us over fully to the wickedness of our heart, it can go from bad to worse in a split second. And that is precisely what will happen here. 
That's precisely what will happen here. Restraint will be removed and he will be given full expression. We read it this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He is now Satan, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. There it will be without restraint. There was a comment made about the Oregon shooting. A few comments, but one of them was this. They brought in a behavioral analysis to kind of try to understand this question. And this is a quote from the article. To help us understand the why of the event. God tells us the why. God tells us the why. Because of the unrestrained wickedness in the heart of man. Number four. The Antichrist's influence will be strengthened by a seemingly miraculous recovery from death designed to mimic the resurrection of Christ. Look at verse 3. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Now again, there have been many interpretations of what this means. That this in itself is a statement about the revival of the Roman Empire. In other words, it seemed like an empire that was gone. And then it was revived to full strength and power. And they say that is the fatal rune and is coming back to life. Another is that it was some of the Roman emperors, one of the most common being Nero, who was supposedly going to come back to life after he committed suicide. Some have even suggested that it is Judas, but none of these, I maintain, hold up under close scrutiny. None of them. And it cannot refer to the Roman Empire because the beast has already been identified as an individual and is identified as an individual. Look at verse 5. It was given to him to open his mouth. Verse 6, he opened his mouth. Verse 7, it was given to him to do this and they're going to worship the beast. He's not speaking of a nation here primarily but of an individual. And he makes that clear by the language with which he speaks about it. Moreover... The resurgence of a nation, as amazing as that will be, is not significant enough in an event by itself to render the worship and the amazement of the whole world. No, he's speaking here about some other kind of event. A satanic deception that is meant to mimic the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This final ruler then, the Antichrist, will receive or appear to receive some wound that results in his death. It may have been through his battles. It may have been through fronts of fighting. Who knows? God doesn't tell us. But he'll receive some wound that apparently results in his death that is supposedly witnessed by the whole world. And yet instead of death, this ruler will appear once again alive, resurrected from the dead. Resurrected from the dead. Again, is it real or fake? Well, it's possible he will experience death or near death, and God grants Satan the ability to heal him, to bring him back. God has given Satan a measure of power over the physical universe. However, it is most likely that it is a form of deception. And what a powerful deception it is. Remember in Matthew 24, if possible, even the elect would be deceived. Even the elect would be led astray because the deception will be so strong and so real and so powerful. So in either case, whether real or fake, the net effect of this deception, this apparent death and resurrection, will be an unprecedented response of amazement and worship by the whole earth. Again, mimicking the death and the resurrection of Christ. Number five. I'm going to go quickly here. 
He will engender and demand religious worship directed toward himself. We just read it in part. And they worship the beast in verse 4, saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And again, this is the ultimate goal. This is Satan's ultimate goal is to receive the worship of men. That's what he wants is worship. Isaiah 14, which is a picture not only of the king that he is addressing here, but of the power behind him. I would hold the satanic power behind him. He says this, But in your heart you said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the amount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the most high. That's the goal. That is the goal. And so this is what he seeks here, and this is what he receives, is the worship of men. The worship of men. And it stands in direct opposition to the worship of Christ that John gave us in the scene of heaven in chapters 4 through 5. If you doubt this is what Satan ultimately wants, is self-worship, worship of himself... Again, we would be only need to be reminded of what did Satan demand of Christ to receive the kingdoms of the world? Fall down and worship me. Fall down and worship me. That shows the tenacity, the desperateness, the overwhelming intensity at which Satan desires that which belongs to God alone, which is the worship of his creation. And all false worship is ultimately directed towards Satan. You might wonder, they say here that they worship the dragon and the beast. And they're one and the same to worship the dragon or the beast is to worship the power behind him, which they do, which is Satan. And so through that, Satan receives the worship that he so desires, that he so desires. Later, it's attached to the beast image, which is parallel to the abomination of desolation. And this then is the epitome and the culmination of all idolatry. Again, mimicking the incarnation of the Son who took on flesh that he might gain a kingdom, that he might rule over the world and receive praise from every tribe and nation and tongue of those whom he redeemed. Look at verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and authority over every tribe, people, and tongue, and nation was given to him. This is the language of Christ's kingdom. This is the language of God's kingdom. Man was created to worship God and not created to worship anything else. And again, this is probably the moment that is spoken of by Paul in Thessalonians. Listen to what he says in 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 2, he says, And no, let no one deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his place in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what he wants, and that's what he's going to do. And frankly, for that moment, that's what he's going to get. God is going to give it to him and allow him to have that kind of praise from his fallen creation. 
He wants what was designed for Christ. Christ wouldn't fall down and worship him to receive the nations, so Satan seeks to grab it for himself, receiving the worship of the nations. Six, he will hate the Jewish nation and all who, who name Christ. Look at verses 5 through 10. 5 through 10. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. It was blasphemies against God, blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and those who dwell in heaven, given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. He will make war with the saints and he will overcome them. He will uh, wreak Havoc and destruction and death and misery such as the world has never seen. We read it earlier. I'll read it again. Speaking of the little horn in Daniel chapter 7, which we don't have time to spend on that. But listen to what he says. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and so forth. And when the saints took possession of the kingdom again, he's not referring to what happened in the past, but what happened to them in the future. What will happen when Christ returns. The saints who at that time will be being overcome by the evil one. And now this Antichrist, this world ruler, has received the added credibility not only of the authority of the ten kingdoms, but also of this supposed miraculous sign, this pseudo-resurrection. And it now takes place in the atmosphere and demand for self-worship that is intensified and by natural consequence results in the hatred and destruction of any other kind of worship. And that's really the battle, isn't it? It's a battle of worship. There cannot be worship for both God and Satan and this world. Worship, by its very definition, requires total allegiance, requires total devotion. And so inasmuch as there's not total devotion to God and to Christ, there is worship of something else in our hearts. And Satan will not allow anything else. Neither will this ruler. He'll hate all who identify with Christ and ratchet it to untold levels of violence, persecution, and death. We can, in our own near history, see the genocide that takes place over in the continent of Africa and the nations there. We see in our little bit further in our own generation, well, almost, uh, the destruction that took place through World War II and Hitler and what he enacted. Over 50 million people of soldiers and civilians died in that war. And the millions of Jews put into the gas chambers and so on. That's horrific, but it's nothing like the punishment that's going to be enacted by this final evil one. And I want you to notice, look at verse 5 and 7. It says, there was given to him, there was given to him. Who's giving this to him? Is it God or is it Satan? Is it the Antichrist who's giving him this authority and power? Or is it God giving him this authority and power? That's the question. Who is the subject of that verb? Who's doing the giving? It's God. God gives him this authority. How do you know that? Well, for one, he gives them this authority, if you'll look, for 42 months at the end of verse 5. Exactly the amount of time that Daniel had already said that God in his plan had allowed 
for the destruction of his people and the wicked plans of this final world ruler to be executed. If it was completely up to the Antichrist, he certainly would not limit it to 42 months, and particularly 42 months exactly as God had said that he would allow this to take place. God is giving this power. God's giving this power. Remember the saints, the martyrs in verse chapter 6? They cried out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It was given to them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a while until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Who's making that decision? God's making that decision. God is making that decision. God gives him this authority because it fulfills his plans and his purposes. So God grants authority to Satan for his own to be killed. You might say, how could God do that? And I would remind you that God gave authority for his own son to be killed. Right? He gave authority for his own innocent, holy, undefiled, and righteous son to be tortured and to be carnally treated, to be hated, and to be mocked on the cross for our redemption. That's part of God's plan in this fallen world. And that plan included the suffering of his son so that sinners could be forgiven. There's another part to this too. God knows that the suffering that his people will endure on this earth is only temporary. It's only temporary. Whatever they suffer here, the end is glory. The end is heaven The end is a place that we sang about this morning with no more tears, no more crying, no more pain, and no more sorrow. And in fact, because Christ also suffered for our sins and we are united to Christ by the Spirit, Paul says this, I consider the sufferings of this world... Not at this present time, not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed with us. Yes, there's suffering, but the end is going to be glory. But listen to what he says right before that. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we also may be glorified with him. That's part of God's plan, and yet the Spirit gives us fellowship with him throughout Now look what he says next. And again, I have to go very quickly here. But look what he says next. After he gives them Satan authority to destroy his people, he says in verse 9 or in verse 8, Those who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And he gives us here in the midst of such a dismal picture, as it were, words of hope. He gives words of hope to those who have the ears to hear. He gives words of hope. What does he give? First, he gives a promise of preservation, a promise of preserving them. 
Everyone whose name was not found written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. In other words, those who are the elect in Christ, those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world, will not succumb to the persecution that is coming. Why? Because God will sustain them. He will keep them. He will uphold them by his mighty and righteous and omnipotent hand. This is a word of encouragement to them who are to suffer. It is the will of the Father that all who have been given to the Son should be raised on the last day. Those who have been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And that is why they also will not be deceived. Ultimately, they're kept by the Son and by the Spirit. The believers are secure in their salvation. Secondly, he tells them this in verse 10. He gives them an encouragement of hope through the promise of providence. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes and so on with the sword and so forth. Which is essentially this, saying God's plan has been determined. His providence will bring it about. So don't fight what is going to happen, but receive God's providential plan and a sovereign plan for you. Know that in the end, you will receive the kingdom with Christ, though for the moment there will be suffering. He's giving them an encouragement here of God's providence in this. God's providence and his sovereign plan that has been determined. Which they needed to hear in their own impending death. Their imprisonment and so forth. This is God's plan. He's got it under control. And my end is glory. Note seventhly this. He will be assisted by a religious alliance with a false prophet that undergirds his authority. We won't read the whole passage. We've already done it. Another beast came up out of the earth. He's given authority to exercise in the presence of the first beast. And it's given to him to do great miracles. Great miracles. It says he has two horns like a lamb and he spoke as a dragon. He is then the ultimate false prophet, which he's identified as directly in Revelation 19 through 20. He is, again, like a Holy Spirit, an unholy Holy Spirit here. He will complete the circle of the political, military, and religious power. His specific task is to engender worship of the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. healed, Verse 12. It's now intensified the worship that was already there. He will be the embodiment of every false teacher, every power of deception that has ever existed will be embodied in this one final false prophet. And this will come with every power of deception that God has ordained. He will be persuasive. He will be influential. He will be intelligent, winsome, both him and the Antichrist, I would hold. He will be likable in some sense, believable, trustworthy. And yet he will be full of destruction and deception. He not only will embody all deception, but every power of wickedness so that he can perform supernatural acts that are designed to deceive and produce unquestioned allegiance to the first beast and to the Antichrist. Notice what he does. He calls fire to come down out of heaven. Fire to come down out of heaven. What does that remind you of? What affirmed Elijah as a prophet of God? Fire came down out of heaven, 1 Kings 18 and consumed the sacrifices that were on the altar. What confirmed or 
showed God's supernatural power in the two witnesses, fire came out of the mouth and consumed those who would attack them. He is directly here imitating those things that gave testimony to God working and affirming his prophet. And now he's doing it saying, look, the two witnesses had the power of fire to destroy. So do I. Mind you of the false prophets at the time of Moses before Pharaoh. It's given to him to do this. So he will be affirmed then in the eyes of people as a spokesman for God which in this case would be claimed by the Antichrist. And that's why he directs all worship to him. The next will be the ultimate deception. He will give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would, not even, would even speak. Again, there's disagreement over whether this is general, a genuine miracle or not, but in either case, it was of such convincing power to deceive the whole world. With the end, that deception Will or the, the beast or the will give will execute even more severely his destruction of the those who resist him. Number eight, and finally, he will use his authority and position to control the entire world economic system. Again, this will require a mark. We won't get into that. Here's the basic way to understand that. We don't need to figure out what the mark is, and nor can we. God hasn't told us, but. The mark by the information given here will be significantly clear enough that those who are alive on the earth at the time will know exactly what it is. They will know exactly what it is. It doesn't matter that we figure out what it is. It matters that those at the time that it will be put on the earth will know exactly what it is. So whatever guesses and hypotheses are given uh, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They will understand and it will be known, and they will know the consequences of obeying or not obeying. So let me summarize, and then we'll go into the table. The coming Antichrist will be the embodiment of evil, a man totally under the control of Satan, who will rule over a final world kingdom that wields control over political, economic, cultural, and religious life. Satan will attempt to mimic or copy the life of Christ, who receives authority from the, and the Antichrist, who receives authority from the dragon, undergoes some kind of death and resurrection, rules over the nations, and receives worship of men. He will hate the nation of Israel and all who name Christ, and will seek to destroy them from the earth. His kingdom and his person will be marked by every kind of blasphemy, even claiming the worship of God for himself. The Antichrist will be assisted by an evil religious system under the leadership of a false prophet who will seem to mimic the role of the Holy Spirit and promote and direct all worship toward the Antichrist by both spiritual deception and force. And the appearance of the Antichrist is yet to take place. The world stage is being set, however, for his appearing. The spirit of the Antichrist has already been at work since the garden and distinctly so since the appearance of Christ and his ascension. And we certainly, again, see the stage being set. The increasing character of godlessness in our society, the glorifying of wickedness, the hatred of the truth, the hostilities toward and isolation of Israel among the nations, the rise of Russia and her ties with the Middle East, the troubles and interrelatedness of the world economy, and the decreasing influence of the United States, and the speed at which an individual can rise to power, and so on it goes. We see that being set. Indeed, the kingdom of this world in rebellion to God is marching toward the height of its power and rebellion, but also its destruction. And this is what we understand. The kingdom that is coming of Satan is not an eternal kingdom. It is a temporary kingdom. It is a kingdom that will rise, will fall, and will be destroyed forever. 
But not so with the kingdom of God and Christ, who is remarked not by rebellion, but love for him. And that's the kingdom that we remember in the table this morning. It's the kingdom that God purchased with his own blood, not the blood of Christ. It's a kingdom given to us that we might know him. A kingdom in which we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We are kept by him through every wind of trial and threat until we're brought safely into its gates by his sovereign power. It's a kingdom that even more causes us to rejoice in our king that we remember this morning. And we remember the price that he paid and remember the promises that he has given. Let's pray and then we'll remember the Lord in his table. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for preparing us in our minds and in our hearts for what you're doing and what you will do. Help us to take these things to heart and to remain faithful to the end. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.